Hello and welcome to Beyond Biotech, podcast number 21. And we're now in November. How'd that happen? I'm Jim Cornell from The Biotech, and I feel like I've not achieved a lot this week. There's been so much going on, I've not really got stuck into anything. I think a part of the reason the week has gone by so quickly is I'm going to be on the road again, or in the sky, I guess, for a trip to Copenhagen, where I'm hoping it's decent weather. Fortunately, it's just a short trip this time. This week was also Halloween, which meant walking around in the rain for two hours while my son collected a variety of candy, much of which he couldn't eat. I've been back from Germany for a week, and I'm still getting German ads on my phone, but at least now I know where to go in Berlin if I need new tyres for my car. Lots of interviews this week, so let's get right in and tell you who the guests are this week. We have chats with Pierre Cornet, VP of the HTFC, which is responsible for Health Tech Innovation Days, Sergei Yakimov, co-founder and managing partner of Longevity and the Longevity Science Foundation's CEO, Lisa Ireland, and with Pierre Morgan, Executive Vice President of CanSinoBio. And we also have our weekly chat with global commercial real estate services company JLL this week with Travis McReady. So now it's time for the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. AI and biobanks could open the way to longevity treatments, reprogramming immune cells can fight melanoma, and startup BioRaptor raised $3 million to drive AI insights for scientists. Scientists, obviously not the same ones, say RNA production inhibitors are important in cancer research. Replay Bio launched an HSV gene therapy company to target retinal eye disease. And a drug discovery company has signed an exclusive license to use a university's technology. Eflux pump inhibitor research may lead the way to beating AMR. Researchers have developed an efficient nano-vaccine delivery system to boost cellular immunity. And the first patient has been enrolled and dosed on an expansion phase of a cancer treatment trial. A new drug application for chronic kidney disease sparked a $35 million milestone payment. Human Immunology Biosciences has launched with $120 million, and Tetris Pharma launched its hypoglycemia injector pen in Germany. A new study says pancreatic cancer could be diagnosed years earlier, and research suggests that first-to-market doesn't guarantee success. JP Morgan launched a life sciences private capital team, and we had an article on how DNA nanotransporters could treat cancer. The native antigen company expanded its range of Omicron antigens. A new therapeutic strategy can improve the treatment of aggressive endometrial cancer, and CV6 Therapeutics raised $9.2 million to test its cancer drug. Breakpoint Therapeutics sabotages DNA repair in cancer cells. VectorBuilder is constructing a gene delivery campus after receiving $57 million in funding, and Virax Biolabs introduced flu, COVID-19, and RSV rapid test kits. Positive results of a cancer treatment are set to be presented at a Boston conference. I assume that's the one in Massachusetts and not Boston in Lincolnshire in the UK. We had an article on what's on the horizon for gene-editing-based therapies, and companies with exclusive rights to CRISPR diagnostic methods have signed an agreement. And you can read all of these and a whole lot more at labiotech.eu. And that brings us to the first of this week's guests. The Longevity Science Foundation is a global non-profit organization providing research funding to establish a longer and healthier human lifespan. It has recently expanded by launching operations in the U.S. and appointing a new president and CEO, Lisa Ireland. To tell us more are Lisa and Sergey Yakimov, co-founder and managing partner of Longevity. Okay, I guess first, could you tell me a little bit about the Longevity Science Foundation? Right, so I will jump in and take that one since I'm the newbie here in the group. Um, so I've been with LSF for two weeks, um, which is incredibly exciting. And the foundation 
is expanding, has expanded officially into U.S. operations, therefore making it a global entity. And that's really important on a, on a number of areas that we can get to. But keywords in the science um, LSF's mission is transparency and accessibility. So we really want to make sure that all of the research that is based around longevity of a healthy, longer human life is accessible to all. So in all of my work in nonprofit, really focused on accessibility for everybody. And I think that that's super important. Um, and also transparency. So really giving information on all of the funding that we're doing and all of the research projects that we're doing is letting people see what we are doing and what the outcomes of the grants and the funding are. So that's really super important. You know, from the non-scientist person, what really intrigues me about this organization and excites me is that we're taking the information from the lab and we're bringing it out into the mainstream. So, so much happens in the lab that none of us know about. Our goal is to make sure that information gets out into the mainstream and into real life. And is there any connection between the company Longevity and the Science Foundation? So there is no direct connection between the two. So Longevity is a venture capital fund, an early stage venture capital vehicle, which is a classic sort of early stage investor into longevity tech, which invests in therapeutics, in, in age-related diseases, so essentially disease-modifying therapies, um, as well as tech in early prediction of these age-related diseases. Now, for you to understand the connection, there is a bit of a timeline involved. So uh, the only thing that the fund and the foundation, the foundation appeared after the fund, we have founded it after the fund was already created, is that it shares some of the founders, meaning some of the managing partners in the fund actually then co-founded the Longevity Science Foundation, as well as there is some sharing of the uh, visionary board members. So those who are in the advisory board in the fund, some of these uh, KOLs from the field are the visionary board members in the foundation. Now the timeline is, is real simple. Back in the days, um, the founders behind the fund were essentially building their careers in, in biotech, some as founders in their own companies, some as early stage investors, et cetera, et cetera. And then we came together and we founded LongeVC, Longevity, uh, which is an, an early stage venture capital vehicle. Now, when we started to invest as an institutional sort of formalized entity, what we have seen and what we have realized is that a lot of early stage, potentially super promising and groundbreaking longevity science does not make it to market. As a VC, you're not allowed to invest in pure science. So you, you actually need some sort of, you know, company shell around it, first validation, first clinical trials done with grants, most probably. And this is where it's your VC mandate, even if you're super early stage. So a lot of promising science, we figure it doesn't even end up in that stage. It sort of dies out because there is not enough non-dilutive funding to begin with, right? So we're losing a lot of potential groundbreaking tech. And this is where we have identified this as a major gap in the market. And this is where we thought, well, we are way behind as compared to where we could have been if we had these proper non-dilutive early, super early stage science funding tools. And this is how LSF essentially was ideologically incepted, if you wish. So the, the fund pretty much inspired to create the foundation because we saw a tremendous gap in the industry, but that's it. They don't intersect. The way we have structured the foundation, and I think Lisa maybe will be talking about that a bit more afterwards, is in the foundation, the donors are the ones that are essentially taking the funding decisions. Uh, and that is way different, totally different from the mandate of the fund. Right? So the fund operates, again, as an early stage investor, where the major purpose of the fund, apart from the ideological component, which is, of course, sort of advancing the full longevity field, is earning a multiplier, right? So earning, multiplying the funds that were invested by, by its LPs. Now, the foundation serves a completely different purpose. It's a nonprofit, and it's there to essentially facilitate the development of the whole space and early longevity science. So 
that being said, the decision-making processes are tremendously different. The um, stage at which these organizations actually get involved with projects is, as you see, tremendously different. Uh, the LSF is, is right there from the very inception of science. Yeah, and I can kind of piggyback and follow up on that too. The nonprofit is governed by a set of bylaws and recently 501c3 um, status was granted, allowing us to incorporate here in the United States and expand our reach across the United States. So as the new president and CEO, we will abide by, obviously, all of the nonprofit administration regulations. And, you know, with our annual meeting of our board members, we do have advisory board members, but we'll follow the nonprofit administration guidelines and best practices of which I've operated under in my career for almost 30 years. So regular updates and meetings, anything that changes, we abide by that. The donors to this fund will also have voting rights, as Sergey said. So for you know different levels of giving, you get voting rights. That expands the transparency piece of it all, and it really kind of gives the. I call it, in, you know, in nonprofit, it's the traditional like you support something because you a believe in the organization, but you believe in the mission. And this is really going to give donors the ability to be involved and to have that understanding and transparency of the work we're doing. So I look at them completely separate because they are completely separate. So Sergey and the team run Longevity VC and I run the nonprofit LSF. Sure. And the next question isn't an accusatory one. It's just I'm interested in cryptocurrencies because a lot of uh, not nonprofits are starting to accept cryptocurrencies more, and I think quite a few are starting to exclusively only accept cryptocurrencies. What's the rationale behind that? There is an ideological component to it, and there is a very functional component to it. So the ideological component to it is when we founded LSF, we happened to be pretty submersed into the whole crypto narrative in terms of the visionary aspect of the of the industry, right? So early crypto adopters, very much like early longevity adopters back in the days, because longevity also sort of grew to be a, a, an industry of its own in the last six years, but it, it pretty much started from a very niche, geeky concept, a geeky corner of biotech. So crypto very much like longevity was adapted by these visionaries, and then it, it gave mass adoption pretty quickly. Back in the days when we were working on these funding mechanisms for the foundation, we saw crypto as one of the important sources of how donors can actually commit funding to the LSF, right? So we partnered with Giving Block, and, and this is how the LSF is able to, to accept essentially all major cryptocurrencies as donations. So there is an, a very obvious, for us, might not be that obvious from the outside, a very obvious match in terms of the ideological risk-taking and sort of visionary appetite between longevity enthusiasts and crypto enthusiasts. That's the first thing. The second thing is that alongside with crypto, the foundation still accepts all the traditional sort of fiat currencies, right? So it's not crypto focused entirely it's more like widening the scope of who can participate and who's who's interested to participate and we have seen equal interest by the way both from sort of the traditional fiat holders uh call them that way right and and more tech savvy crypto crowd so mm -hmm. both work and we appeal to both audiences and i think that's going to be true as we expand our outreach to different donor databases and different, you know, donor segments here in the United States is that crypto is growing in its popularity in the United States. It's still, you know, a lot of philanthropy tends to be in an older crowd years ago. So I love to watch when I talk to them about crypto and they're like, no, no, but then they're interested in learning. So I think that's going to really help our conversations as well is getting through to those markets. You mentioned the decision-making ability of donors. How, how are you going to manage that? And how do you manage to keep that uh, on focus as opposed to ending up with people just wanting their own pet projects, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So one of the things from best practices here is people can do in traditional nonprofit, let's say, people can do restricted gifts 
and their gifts will only go to fund certain projects within an organization. So this is going to follow a simple idea, you know, simple idea like that, but it's going to all be based in grant platforms and oversight of the grants and almost as if everyone, you know, gets a point value for certain things so we can keep track of that on the back end. I like to look at it the way that large universities do endowment funding. So if you create an endowed fund and you give a $100,000 gift, you get a XYZ percentage of this major endowment. And then when we pull those reports out, your portion gains this much of the growth of the fund. So there's a way of, you know, tracking that on the back end, but I really think it's going to help with transparency and engagement of our donors. We have actually ensured that the donors and those who will be voting for projects to be funded will actually receive these voting options in the most sort of pre-vetted and easily digestible, if you wish, form as possible, right? Because what the foundation runs is a, there is a tech solution behind, which is essentially the donor platform that they interact with, where they vote, where they banish their voting rights, everything then sort of review these proposals that are there for voting. But then process-wise, all the proposals that end up with the foundation within a specific funding call essentially go through multiple stages of filtering, right? Where they are sorted, first and foremost, according to their relevance, the funding call, they're then reviewed by the visionary board, essentially pre-vetted by the visionary board. They are then viewed from the investments, well, not even the investment, but, but rather the analyst team perspective, right? Where it's very much like a VC fund. If you, if you think about the logic where you have a dedicated team, which actually looks at the soundness and, and sort of evaluates the probability of this happening to begin with, the soundness of the science, et cetera, et cetera. And only then, after being evaluated scientifically, pre-vetted by the advisory board, they end up in the voting process. So as a donor, you essentially receive a very well-explained and a very well-curated list of what's eligible 100%. They're all good, right? So whatever you pick is, is you're essentially picking according to your either personal preferences or your background or your own sort of beliefs and you know willingness to see something happening with the longevity industry in the next 10 years, that sort of thing. So that's the process which which eases life for donors. Mm-hmm. It's very important, right? So they're not just voting for random science or their own pet projects, not at all. And could you tell me a little bit about the expansion and moving into the US and what it means for companies applying for funding? I think that the global entity of the organization now is going to expand its reach. There's going to be a tremendous amount of outreach on my end to make sure that I'm at the right conversations, I'm at the right places, talking about the opportunity and really making LSF top of mind to A, donors, but also to grant funders. Here in Rochester, we're very heavy with universities, which is great. So some of the work that I did when I was at the Rochester Institute of Technology was direct work with both donors and grants themselves. So connecting those two is super important as well. So once you start the interest of people, then you have the ability to connect them and inform them of the work. And back to a point that Sergey made, bringing it down to the quick understandable piece for the donors of the scientific research, I liken that to a project that I did at RIT, where I had each of the deans of the colleges select a PhD candidate, and they took their PhD thesis, and they brought it down to a three-minute general conversation with community. And that was incredibly impactful because everyone could understand what that research was and what the impact was. So I think that's kind of the mindset that I'm taking when we look at this is this is a huge opportunity. What does it mean in layman's terms? And how's that impact going to be? And when it comes to actually applying for funding, do you have set criteria? You kind of went through a little bit of the background. How will the companies learn about this? The way that we operate is, is we essentially operate in funding calls. And this is where the foundation announces the funding call, where the first funding call was actually an aging clocks. Uh, and that was announced spring 2022. So we're soon essentially closing that one and looking at the projects that we got and evaluating them. So 
We're also looking to announce our second funding call real soon. That is still stealth mode, but you will hear about us pretty soon in that regard. Otherwise, yeah, we're, we're operating in batches. The longevity world is fairly small. So we're quite well known in the community already. We do participate in all the major longevity events and then the events that might have relation to longevity. So some of the biotech events as well. So this is how people know about us. This is how the research community knows about us. And they essentially match their research projects with the funding calls that we currently have. Only thing that I would add to that is with my official appointment, that's going to give us the opportunity to continue to build our awareness and our brand and expand our reach to many, many areas, which is going to be great. Obviously, it's hard to say without a crystal ball, but could you give me a little bit of a potential timeline in terms of when you expect to see funding and see results? So we are going to close that funding call in the next month or so. Mm -hmm. And this is where some of the evaluation work is already happening sort of behind the scenes. So we will be finalizing that in the next month. And then we'll take another month or two, I think, to, to, to do the voting and to announce the results. Now, what needs to be stressed here is that the way that the foundation raises funds is on the rolling basis, which means that the fundraising process for the foundation, it sort of continues in the background anyway. But then we do have essentially the funding slots or the funding amounts that are allocated for each call. And this is how we ensure that the ones the projects that were selected in a specific goal will get funding because the funding was already reserved and secured by the foundation in the first place. That will be the approximate timeline. So when you fund these projects, you also want to make sure that you can follow them along yeah. and understand how they perform and understand whether there is any sort of added value that the foundation, the team, the visionary board can actually bring along the way. It's a bit of a smart money concept, which is very common in the VC industry, right? So same here, like we actually want to help them. It's not that you throw money at them and then, you know, check back in the year. Yeah, uh, it doesn't work that way anyway. So we want to make sure that they actually succeed. And if we can help, we help. So it's this component as well. It's very important. And I would say from the nonprofit administrative piece, everyone that's a traditional donor would get annual reports or they would get stewardship reports or updates on, you know, thank you for giving to this fund and here's this. That's going to be a key piece of keeping our donors informed, engaged, and aware of what's happening and how that can be. So now we have also an important piece is we have a set amount of funds for each of our calls for proposals. When we're super successful in our fundraising, there also will be, as Sergey said, on a rolling basis, some opportunity of special one-off projects come up. Then we can look at that as well outside of those individual large grant calls for proposals. The HTID event took place recently, and that stands for Health Tech Innovation Days. We had a conversation to get a roundup of the event with Pierre Corneille, VP of the HTFC. Yeah, Health Tech for Care actually is an endowment fund. And under this umbrella, uh, we have one big event, which is HTID. So HTFC is here to help the organization of HTID, which is Health Tech Innovation Days. So this is one of the events. We have also Health Tech for Patients, which is another event under the umbrella of HTFC. This is the main difference. And the other difference, I would say, is that this is the only event in Europe of this kind, and it is really to push faster and better innovation uh, for the benefit of the patient. So this is the aim. And this is actually what we thought is to bring all the stakeholders together from bench to bed, all the stakeholders together in one event so that we can break clusters and we can actually have a favorable environment where all the parties can talk together and to understand, really to understand each other in order to create some like, a relationship. And, and are there other things that the um, HDFC does? Yeah, I mean, HDFC is the young organization. So HTID is the main event. We have Health Tech for Patient, which is another event. 
Uh, now we are working on podcasts, uh, the subjects, the virus subject, but with always the aim of serving patient, of informing patient, of bringing as fast as possible innovation to patients. So I would say that this event is quite different from bio or other events because the positioning is different. The most recent one was the fourth HTID. I wonder if you could give me some of the background on that, you know, the numbers, how many people were there, that kind of thing. Yeah, so this year was the, the fourth edition. And actually, we had to change uh, our location because uh, the number of participants is, is growing very fast. And uh, during this fourth edition, we decided to hold this event at the Palais Brognard. So Palais Brognard is basically the former Paris Stock Exchange. This venue is much larger than uh, the former venue. And so we can uh, scale up uh, this event uh, nicely. During those two days, actually, it was very successful because we had uh, 1,600 formal and informal face-to-face and virtual meetings. So this is uh, something quite uh, quite big. We had more than uh, 165 European health technology companies, health tech. We had 15 pharmaceutical groups and over 300 international investors. So you can imagine 300 international investors talking with uh, uh, 165 European uh, health tech. So we are really making a, a great thing there. And we had also roundtables, 19 roundtables tackling topics of current interest. And uh, we had 86 international experts gathering and animating those roundtables. So, yeah, that was a great success. With an event like this where there are lots of investors and companies meeting together, do you ever find out about the successes and the deals that happen? This is something we are going to follow up after calling back those companies and those investors and asking them if they had some positive outputs from those meetings. But I I would like to insist on one thing on HTID. It's really a European event again. And we had some people from the European Union. We had the four people from the European Commission. We had the one from the European Bank. And all those people gave their opinion on what direction Europe should go. So, you know, this is great insight for us. Seems like that was a highlight in itself, but I wonder if you could tell me some of the other highlights from the event. (laughs) Yes, of course. Well, what is amazing is that Europe has a strong network of hundreds of companies with uh, ambitious innovation in the field of health. I mean, that's something we all know. And actually, that's figures coming from the European Commission. We had 4.1% increase in healthcare spending in 2022, and this is higher than the global GDP growth. We understand from those very simple data that we have a long-term trends in Europe in terms of healthcare. It means that we are going to spend more than our GDP you know, in terms of percentage. We are going to, to grow more than our GDP. So... How do we structure that? Well, first, we have to build the Europe of health, which is not the case today. Of course, we have EMA, we have a very good outcome, uh, how Europe uh, should unify. But there's still a lot of things to be done in the Europe of of health. And we have absolutely to be at the forefront of health innovation. You know, countries need to break their silos. It's not competition between France and Germany. It's not competition between uh, Germany and uh, Belgium and other. This is really European innovation against U.S. innovation, Chinese innovation, you know. So we should not look at what we are doing in one country, but we, are, we have to look at what we can do at a European level. Because otherwise, it will be very, very difficult to compete with the U.S. innovation and the Chinese innovation in the future. We need to finance. We really need to finance uh, this innovation. Because if we are not able, if Europe is not able to finance this innovation, then at a certain point, those great assets will go abroad, will be bought by the US, by China. And uh, this is what we see when a product, biotech, for example, comes, is developing a product in phase three. You know, when you when you start a, a phase three, you need between 150 and 300 million euros to bring your product to the NDA, right? Today, it is very difficult to find investors 
a syndi even a syndicate of investors able to finance that. So the companies have a tendency, uh, have no choice, I would say, to go to the US or to go to China or other countries that will be able to finance this phase three. And this comes with a change of control, usually, you know. So a change of control means that the assets are not anymore European assets. And this is a pity because usually those assets are great, have been founded by public money. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they are not anymore European. So how can we in Europe, what incentive, what can we give to the investors? How can we grow this ecosystem of investment in Europe to be able to keep our asset here in Europe? That's another very important question. Resources and talent, for example, is another issue. We know that uh, talent have a tendency at a certain point to look at the US, right? And how can we keep those talents in Europe? What kind of incentive we can give them? And I think another very uh, another topic is really how to build a transatlantic bridge because we know that innovation is also by sharing competencies. How can we build a, a fair bridge and a sustainable bridge between the US and Europe, but keeping our asset here in Europe? Right now, in terms of the what we're hearing in the media, we're hearing a lot about mRNA, microbiome, digital health and AI, femtech. They seem to be quite prominent. Were there any of those subjects in uh, prominence at HTID as well? Yes, yes, of course, those subjects are very, very important. So those were largely debated during uh, our roundtables. Actually, we had three roundtables on digital health, on AI. We had, for example, uh, particularities of investing in digital health. We had how uh, artificial intelligence is revolutionizing the patient-doctor relationship and so on. We had one roundtable on microbiome and we had one roundtable on mRNA. The, the roundtable uh, on mRNA was, was great. And uh, we had uh, Christoph Uber, who is a co-founder of BioNTech that came from Germany, to tell us how this happened. And this is important because this is, a, this is a success story. BioNTech is a real success story. And he shared it with uh, the audience and, and that was great. We also had uh, one roundtable on femtech. We know that uh, in the past, femtech was not attracting for many companies, but now more and more companies are, are developing product uh, in this segment. But we had also other, because there's not only uh, those, those topics, there's also, for example, the, the European healthcare system, the financing of European innovation, the in vitro diagnostic, we saw is so important. And we saw during COVID the importance of this and how to retain our talent in Europe. We tried to tackle all the important topics during this HTID, but not only making a diagnostic, but I think what was very interesting in, in those uh, roundtable, it was giving some solution giving some ideas how to solve the issue, how to be better. This is a great food for thought for the people who attend. We mentioned some of the things that were at HTID. Are there any other key topics that you're seeing currently? Well, maybe it's personal, but for me, the main topic is that we have a fantastic academic research in Europe, right? Very equivalent to what we see in the U.S., now, it's how to finance this, how to bring those very innovative molecules to the market and how to finance that. So this is what I said before. We don't have a, a robust system of financing our innovation in Europe, which is either the private system. So I would say the venture capital, because usually for a phase three, the amount of money is too high or Public, we can we can do an IPO on, on Euronext, but Euronext doesn't have the depth of Nasdaq. On Nasdaq, you raise between 100, uh, 150 million euros, then you are backed by US investors afterwards. So you can maintain a certain market cap, right? Because the investors are, are following you after. On Euronext, it's more difficult. You know, when you raise 50 million, you are happy. And sometimes the investor does, do not follow you after. So on both I would say a private or public system, we need really to build something strong and robust. As far as the event goes, are plans already underway for the next one? Will, will it be at the same venue? 
It will be at the same venue because uh, we had already some feedback from uh, the participants that they like it very much. Of course, uh, this event, again, is unique and aims to bring all the people together, all the actors of the European uh, ecosystem. And now we are uh, listening to the voice of those participants to know what was good, what they think should be improved. And based on all those feedback, we are already preparing the fifth edition. Yes. And we will make it even more European, including more countries, including more clusters, because the clusters in Europe are very important. We have many clusters. We have clusters from Switzerland, from France, uh, Germany, Belgium, and all those clusters are more involved in HTI. At the beginning, when we started the first edition uh, of this event, it was under the haut patronage of our president, Emmanuel Macron. And uh, since then, every year, he has uh, renewed is au patronage, meaning that uh, Emmanuel Macron and the government have seen the impact of HTID at a European level and what it could bring at a European level. If one Pierre wasn't enough, we have another because next we are talking about inhaled COVID vaccines with Pierre Morgan, Executive Vice President of CanSinoBio. CanSino is a Chinese company. It's incorporated in Tianjin, in the, so the headquarters in Tianjin. Tianjin is this small, by China standards, at least it's less than 20 million people. <laughs> small city, which is a harbor on the sea, about 150 kilometers south of Beijing. The name is actually meaning Canada and China, because it is. it has been established by five returnees that they call sea turtles in China because they come back to lay their eggs on the beaches where they were born, <laughs> hence the, the the nickname. And three of the five founders are Canadian. Uh, so they essentially immigrated when they were, you know, finishing their college studies. And then they had their beginning of their careers uh, in Canada or in the US. And it's actually quite uh, interesting that China does not allow dual citizenship. So if you take a dollar citizenship, you have to drop your Chinese citizenship, which is their case. Established in 2009, and uh, on the website you'll find all the history of the company. It has, you know, progressively, you know, uh, embedded several technologies, developed several products, and we're now at a stage where uh, we have an established presence with an R&D center manufacturing in Tianjin. We have another production center in Shanghai. We have different small beachheads around the world. The latest one created is the one in Switzerland, in Geneva, where uh, I am managing director, among other things. And uh, which is the um, the affiliate that is uh, there to ensure the, the proper connection with the World Health Organization, with Gavi, with you know, all, all those supranational organizations that play a key role in the field of vaccines. Uh, the company has several licensed products, including an Ebola vaccine, uh, including a, a SARS-CoV-2, so COVID vaccine, which exists both in injectable, but also inhaled. So it is the first ever inhaled, and I say, did say inhaled, not intranasal. Okay, so it's not something that you spray in the nostrils like a nasal spray, it's something that you inhale like an asthma medication, if you will, but gets into your lungs, which is the first ever inhaled vaccine. There was, there has been an attempt by WHO many years ago for a measles inhaled vaccine, which never saw the light of commercial day for a number of reasons. And then we have also two meningococcal conjugate vaccines. And we have a total of pipeline with something like 17 products under development. So we have uh, quite a pipeline ranging from, you know, products that are relatively similar to those that are already uh, existing to globally innovative products. Uh, and the positioning of the company is really uh, high quality vaccines. You know, we take pride in being inspected by the World Health Organization, by the European Medicine Agency, in addition, of course, to the Chinese authorities and to passing those inspections. And we produce essentially at affordable cost of goods so that we can sell to low income, middle and low income countries. Can you tell me a bit more about the COVID-19 vaccine? Sure. So the COVID-19 vaccine, so first of all, in terms of technology, it is what is called a vector, viral vector. So if you will, it is not too dissimilar from the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The idea is you use essentially the shell of a virus, which naturally infects uh, human cells, and you modify its genome 
so that when it is captured by the cells, it encodes the production of the spike protein, in this case of the coronavirus. You could encode other proteins, of course. And this viral vector is engineered to not replicate, penetrate the cell, but it doesn't trigger an expansion of the, of the viral population, if you will. So this vaccine is available in two presentations which are the same formulation. One is injectable, classical, you know, in the, uh, in the muscle, in the arm, single dose uh, with a booster at six months, and the booster gives you six months protection. Booster gives you 12 months protection. So actually, it is, it is a vaccine which gives you sustained protection, contrary to the uh, RNA, if you will. And then what we have developed is, because of also of the, of the active ingredient, uh, we have developed an aerosolized presentation so essentially, it's something that you put a fraction of the dose, one-fifth of the dose that you use for injectable into a machine that you call the, is called a nebulizer. It creates a mist, you know, like uh, very, very tiny droplets, which are below 5 microns of size, average 2.5 microns. So they go very deep in the lungs. And when you inhale, essentially, you get that dose to trigger an immune response on the mucosa, uh, which is called IgA in addition to the circulating immunity, meaning the IgG and the T-cell response. You may have seen a lot of uh, you know, press coverage on what is called mucosal immunity, which is, can we generate a first line of defense at the point where the virus essentially connects with the body and starts replicating and infecting the individual, which is the airways. And so the, the benefit of mucosal immunity is to create this first line of defense. And then, of course, if some of the virus still crosses into the bloodstream, you still have the IgG, so the classical antibodies and the T cells. So in the, in the case of the inhaled vaccine presentation for, for um, uh, the, the consigned one, the Convidesia, what we have demonstrated is that you have the IgA, so the mucosal response, but compared to a booster given injectable, we still have a higher IgG response, so circulating antibody response, and a higher T-cell response. So right now, this presentation is licensed in China, so it, is start to be, it starts to be used, and we are in the process of filing the dossier, the regulatory dossier around the world, in countries that have already approved the injectable, but also in other countries because it is globally innovative, and last week, we were at the World Vaccine Congress in Barcelona, Spain. We had a scientific presentation of the clinical results. We had a, a roundtable that was very well attended on mucosal immunity. And we demonstrated several times the, uh, the procedure to inhale the, the vaccine. It's a very quick procedure, essentially. What are the benefits of this compared to the traditional injection that we get in the arm? Well, I mean, the first the first benefit, of course, is, is the uh, individual protection. You know, you get this first line of defense at the point of entry of the virus. The second benefit for the individual is, is that it is better tolerated. Of course, you have no pain and no swelling at the point of injection because there's no injection. So whoever is afraid of the needle, of course, that should be appealing. You still have the systemic reaction. So the next day, you still have a bit of fever, right? Because you have an immune response, of course. So you know, your body is reacting to the vaccine. But the incidence of side effects and the degree of severity is less than with the injectable. The second benefit is the what we call antigen sparing. You know, when you use 0.5 milliliter for an adult to inject in the deltoid muscle versus 0.1 inhaled, you essentially divide those fivefold. And the third benefit, which is to be demonstrated, so now what we need to do is to collect what we call real-world evidence, is to demonstrate that by having the first line of defense and therefore neutralizing the virus as soon as it hits the lungs and starts to replicate, we hope to demonstrate that we neutralize the virus and therefore that a vaccinated individual will not be carrying and therefore transmitting the virus. As you know, with the injectable, all the injectable vaccines, someone who's vaccinated may be protected individually, but may still have replication of the virus in his airways and may therefore contaminate others. With this line of protection, or first you know, level of neutralizing activity right at the point of entry, we expect to demonstrate a material impact on transmission. 
Is this a vaccine that's easier to distribute and to administer? Well, in terms of distribution, it is not a difficult vaccine. It is, you know, a classical vaccine which is stored at fridge temperature. There's no need for any deep freezing. You know, it's not complex like the uh, RNA vaccines, which, you know, need deep freezing and then thawing before being uh, uh, administered. So it's like any other vaccine uh, or any other biologic it is stored at regular fridge temperature. In terms of ease of administration, the total procedure, you know, between the moment you prepare the dose, have it nebulized and give it to the person to inhale, the container of the mist looks essentially like a coffee cup, except it's, uh, you know, it's you, you, you actually pump the, the mist instead of you know, drinking a latte. <laughs> but but uh, it's been about one minute for the administration per person. So it's actually very, very short. The only difference is what is disposable. You know, when you have a syringe, uh, you have to dispose it as biologically tainted material. Well, here, of course, the authorities are asking us that we discard the cup and the lid, uh, which contains the mouthpiece, after use. So it's actually one cup, like one syringe per, per vaccinated person. So, so from the logistic perspective, it's about the same thing, except, of course, the cups are a bit more bulky than the syringes. I guess I, I saw that it was called a breakthrough against COVID. Can you explain why it's a breakthrough? First of all, it's a breakthrough because it is a world premiere. It is the first inhaled vaccine ever that is commercialized. Why we think it is a breakthrough is that, you know, contrary to our competitors, you know, you may have seen the results and the statements from the um, team at uh, the Jenner Institute in Oxford saying that they tried the AstraZeneca vaccine intranasal and they have published the results. So it's published. I'm, I'm only stating publicly available information here that they're intranasal is inferior to the injectable in terms of what is called circulating immunity, antibodies and T-cells. Whereas in our case, we have demonstrated that in addition to the mucosal immunity, we have higher circulating immunity, antibodies and T-cells than injectable. So that's why I think it is a breakthrough. And of course, the expectation, as I was saying, is that we demonstrate a positive impact on carriage by the vaccinated person, therefore positive impact on transmission. But we have to demonstrate this in what is called in real life studies. So we have demonstrated the superior individual protection and immune response. Now what we need to demonstrate is the collective benefits. And you mentioned earlier that you were at the WVC Congress in Barcelona. What did you present there and how did that go down to the with the crowd? I'm telling you, I mean, the, the presentation went on very well. I mean, and the, all the discussion on mucosal immunity also, because mucosal immunity is not new. When you look at vaccine history, you already have other mucosal vaccines. Look at oral polio, oral typhoid, oral hepatitis A, and you have one intranasal influenza vaccine, as you know, Flumist, right, which was developed by Medimmune, which is now in the portfolio of AstraZeneca. So vaccine science is already telling us that mucosal immunity worked. You may have heard also an extensive work that was done by the NIH in the US on the American military uh, using a, a tablet of adenophore virus oral for mucosal protection. So there's already evidence out there that mucosal immunity worked. Vaccine science had already taught us some lessons. And I think where the true innovation comes was to think of, hey, what if we're administering this vaccine rather than going to a relatively small cavity, which is the cavum right behind the nostrils, okay, which is small and encumbered by plenty of dirty things, mucus and stuff, go all the way to the lungs. And the lungs, if you spread the surface of a human lung, you get more than the surface of a tennis court. So that's a lot more surface, okay, uh, and which is a lot cleaner and where you can really have an impact. So that's that. So that was the idea. Of course, we had to resort to technology which is used commonly in the field of pulmonology. So in the point of vaccinations, you know, what people do, standard practice is open a drawer, take a syringe, take a needle, connect one with the other, take a vial, draw a dose, inject. Standard procedure. Nebulizing, you know, creating an aerosol with the liquid is not something that they do commonly. But in pulmonology, they do this all the time. So there's plenty of providers out there of fully licensed nebulizers as medical devices. So the question was to find the right partner. 
with a machine that would actually be generating a mist which had this, the, the right level of droplet distribution so that when you inhale it would go to where we want in the lungs. You mentioned it's already in use in China. I think the other one was Malaysia. Are there any other countries on the horizon? Well, actually, yeah, Malaysia and also there, of course, Indonesia also, because those two countries have very close uh, regulatory relationship with uh, with China, and therefore they, they typically react very fast. We are actually going to be registering in all the countries where we already registered with the injectable. Mexico, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, Pakistan, uh, United Arab Emirates. And then we have uh, other countries or other regions where we will apply. So we have several ongoing procedures in Morocco, in Algeria. Uh, we're having conversation with Kenya as well. And of course, we will be approaching Europe through the EMA. Switzerland, I think now we have to approach the MHRA separately because now the UK is independent for obvious reasons, we, we, we're not even thinking about the US. The relationship between US and China is at an all-time low. And you see, the issue is when you're working with vaccines, you're really frontline public health. It's prevention of infection, which are transmissible diseases in the population. So you are working very, very closely with the authorities. And as much as I don't like it, politics gets into the picture. I mean, I started my career doing clinical pharmacology in a hospital, taking care of patients. And then I've been spending 35 years in this industry. So it tells you my age. And I've seen a number of things which I actually don't like because I think they're against the best interest of the patients simply because politics get in, in the way. But maybe I'm too idealistic in this respect. Do you think there are other indications where this kind of, um, instead of injecting, this kind of technology would be applicable? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are already working on other candidates based on the same technology for other respiratory infections, including infections that you find in two very poor countries, you know, like tuberculosis. And we're already having discussions with the World Health Organization, with the Gavi, on those candidates, even though they're early stage, they raise a lot of interest also because they bear the promise of a, you know, bringing a different solution, a different type of benefit to the patients. Yeah, I mean, we definitely plan on leveraging this platform. And um, yes, I think it's a commitment that uh, Consigno has to mucosal immunity through the airways. There's a very interesting WHO paper on this. What are the, the, the germs that propagate the fastest? They're the respiratory born, the airborne pathogens. Anything which is waterborne or foodborne, you can control through cooking or boiling the water and etc. Okay. Anything which is vectorborne, you know, like mosquitoes or ticks or whatever, or dogs or monkeys for rabies, those are limited by the vector themselves. So the, the most dangerous pathogens are those that spread in the air, droplets or in, in the air. And, and the only other type of pandemic that you have is in case of any other mean of transmission, but with a very long incubation period. That was the case for HIV. You know, HIV is direct contact, but because the incubation period is so long, the, the virus has the time to spread before you figure out that there's something really going wrong. Typically, the respiratory pathogens, you get symptoms relatively quickly. So right now, when you look at the focus of all the organizations that work on you know, pandemic prevention, you have either those respiratory pathogens, still influenza, other coronaviruses, or you know, the um, like the hemorrhagic fever viruses that typically are transmitted by direct physical contact by the blood, but they're very lethal. And this is why they, they get a lot of attention. So still plenty of work for you to do yet then. Yeah, well, preventing transmissible diseases, yeah, I, I agree with you, is a never-ending never work, especially also because you have so many pathogens that exist in animals that w one day find their way into humans. It's called a zoonotic disease. Now, with the human population increasing, we spend our time encroaching on wild animal habitats, you know, in jungles, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, and et cetera. And then you have competition with the animals for food or you consume those animals as food. And all of a sudden, those viruses that have been around and they are perfectly settled in God knows what, you know, a monkey, a bat, a pangolin or whatever, and then they say, well, that thing which, which is wearing jeans and T-shirt is kind of interesting and I'll find my way through the mucosa. And there you go. <laughs> and and we're, so we're, the question is not whether we will get the next another pandemic. The question is when. Sobering thought. But then, of course, you can't really re react to it until it's there. 
Well, that's that's the whole idea. It's 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 about you know having platforms ready, knowing technologies, having also manufacturing units spread around the world. And actually, Consigno is involved in you know um, localizing our technology. We do contribute to the ongoing efforts of localizing vaccine production as a way to create you know a more disseminated manufacturing footprint, which therefore creates a more agile solution rather than having a limited number of large and inflexible factories. And now we're able to go over to the US for our weekly chat with JLL. And this week, Travis McCready is back with us. Good to talk to you again, Travis. Hi, Jim. It's great to be back with you this week, bringing to you live perspective from my colleagues attending the pharma trade show CPHI Frankfurt, which is currently underway. In the U.S., the life sciences real estate ecosystem is in the midst of a little lull, or recalibration to put it mildly, as we adjust to broader market macroeconomic conditions. That said, as we have discussed before, one area where exuberance remains consistent is in biomanufacturing. As the scale and importance of biomanufacturing grows, so do calls to confront biomanufacturing's sustainability challenges. CPHI has taken up this challenge in earnest, dedicating an entire track to new findings showing how the biopharma manufacturing value chain is undergoing a dramatic, long overdue shift towards greener standards. This includes for CDMOs, API manufacturers, supply chain, and the like. According to CPHI's survey results, 95% of industry executives believe Visibility into sustainability is important or extremely important across the value chain. Moreover, 83% believe specific sustainability metrics like full waste recycling, green power percentage, low PMIs, and green chemistries will be implemented within all CDMO contracts within the next five years. For an industry already grappling to keep pace with the speed of R&D, the explosion of new modalities, cost rises, and persistent regulatory change, incorporating sustainability practices will profoundly affect contracting, pricing, and particularly infrastructure planning. This industry shift is as much strategic as it is prophylactic. If not properly addressed, there can result costly effects of climate change to pharma manufacturing facilities because of their unique operating specifications. These facilities have heavy HVAC demands, leading to a massive appetite for energy and energy redundancy. There are heavy users of water, which in some geographies is becoming increasingly scarce, and can produce higher than average amounts and unique qualities of waste. In order to prepare for these facilities to function in the face of inevitable climate change, the industry understands that new best practices must emerge for the design, operation, and facility management. At JLL, we are also seeing how the sustainability focus is shaping the earliest of decision-making around where to site manufacturing facilities. We've always worked with our manufacturing clients to understand cost and talent concerns, as well as provide leading facility management solutions that improve risk management. However, increasingly, companies are also factoring in climate change trends and weather patterns, local regulatory frameworks, and the stability of energy sources. In the European context, we recently published a best practices guide, which is available on our website, for achieving sustainability with life sciences real estate, including manufacturing. Given the flood of interest in this information and the rapidly changing landscape of solutions, we will soon develop the same for the Americas as well. A recent study of drug approvals by the U.S. FDA showed that if you look back over the past three decades, there have only been nine years in which the FDA approved more than 40 drugs per year, and seven of those years occurred in the past decade. Perhaps said a bit differently, the pace of demand for biomanufacturing services from preclinical to commercial is quickening. Attendance at CPHI Frankfurt is a clear representation of this demand as more and more smaller, self-performing biopharma companies and scaling CDMOs are attending the conference alongside large pharma and juggernauts like Samsung Biologics. Through forums like CPHI, let's make sure that we're all working together. 
to quickly and intently embrace biomanufacturing sustainability practices, technologies, standards, and metrics that radically improve these assets' performance and, importantly, their standing in the overall community. Thanks again, Jim, and I will see you again next week. Great. Thanks, Travis. Sustainability is definitely something close to my heart, and having said that, really, it should be on everyone's priority list. Travis McReady is the leader of JLL's Life Science Markets Advisory Practice in the Americas, working closely with the global and scaling life sciences companies, developers, and investors to achieve breakthroughs. He has more than 25 years of experience spearheading successful ventures related to technology and innovation, including as president and CEO of a $1.6 billion life sciences funding agency. All right, that's it for another week and another podcast. Next week's visit to Copenhagen is a short one, so I should be back by Wednesday, which means cramming five days into two to get the podcast ready. Fortunately, I have material already done. Well, when I say that, I mean it's not edited yet, so it's not ready at all, really. So I should probably go and get my bags packed, or repacked, for another trip to the airport, where it's a 12-minute walk from the car park to the terminal, so hopefully it's not raining. And hopefully I don't drop my parking ticket this time and lose it. So, until next time, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast, and that, wherever in the world you may be, that you have a great week ahead, and join us next time for another Beyond Biotech.